Good morning. Bless you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is something about that name. Amen. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I want to ask you to take out your Bible, your copy of the Scripture. And I want to ask you to find your way to the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 7. And we're going to read some words written hundreds of years ago. But they have amazing impact and relevance for us today. So much is going on in our country from so many directions. We can ask the Lord, Lord, what would, what would you have us to do as your people? What would you have us to do? I believe that loud and clear the Lord is saying back to us, pray, pray, pray. Bring your anxious places to me. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. Make your requests known unto me. And here's what will happen. He's promised. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, amen, <laughs> shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is not the time for the church to be frantic. This is not the time for the church to panic. <laughs> this is not the time for the church to spend a little time on this this morning to be unforgiving. This, this is not the time for the church to forget what the Lord rescued us from when he brought us unto himself. It's not the time for us to forget what we used to be, where we used to find life only to realize it was just death. This is the time for the church to remember who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Because what he has done and is doing for us, he wants he wants it to be done in the hearts of every life in this country and around this world. So he calls us to pray. He calls us to pray. There was a phrase that uh, I first heard referencing the prayer of a church in Seoul, Korea, and they would use the term an open heaven. They desired for there to be an open heaven. And they felt as if that was what the Lord had granted them as they prayed for folks to come to know Christ and for the, the ways of God to be more known in their nation. They asked for an open heaven so that the communication and the power and the blessings from heaven to earth would be freely dispensed and that the cries from earth to heaven, the longings from earth to heaven would be easily and quickly and without hindrance heard. 
It's important, folks, that in at this day in the life of our nation, that the church in this country experience an open heaven with our Heavenly Father and that He has that relationship with us, that what He speaks, not only will we hear, but we'll do what He wants us to do, especially and particularly in the place of prayer. There is a statement that I believe is a true statement that I want to read to you as it relates to what is going on in our country and the political process that we are involved in. The most powerful segment of the electorate in the United States of America is the true church, the true church. Not because of our numbers, but because of our Father's listening ear. The most powerful segment of the electorate in this nation is the true church of Jesus Christ. Not because of our numbers, but because of our Father's listening ear. Listen to this statement, or these, this series of statements, out of 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 13. The Lord had appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, If I, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice, if I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locust to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who were called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes shall be opened and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. The context of 2 Chronicles 7, 13 and following is that the Lord is giving direction to Solomon and the people of Israel who would come after him as well as those alive during that time. The understanding is that if the rain doesn't come because my people have strayed from me, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, their crops, because they have strayed from me, they're, they're turning another way. And if, if I send pestilence, even disease, among my people because they've lost their touch with me, they have strayed, they've gone away, 
And because I love them, I want to bring them back. And I know how to get their attention. In an agricultural economy, they got to have rain. The locusts can't come in and devour their crops, or they have, they have no food to eat and no, no crop to sell. I know how to get their attention. But if my people who are not in the place of obedience, they're in the place of disobedience, and that's why this stuff is happening. But if my people, even though they're away from me, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face again and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Folks, the Lord knows that he doesn't have a group of perfect humans to work with, that we're always going to be prone to stray. Until we get to heaven, this old flesh, the old me, the old you, that's still there somewhere, even though Jesus has come to live in our hearts. Paul will say the flesh and the spirit war against each other. There's a battle that goes on inside the lives of Christians many times, and we can be prone to fall back into the old ways. But the good news is that our Father knows how to get our attention, doesn't he? He knows how to to, to push a button or to prick a sore spot somehow in there that to remind us, wait a minute, these things are happening because I've lost my sense of priority with him and I need to return. And then he says, if my people will come back to me and if they'll humble themselves and they'll pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear when they pray and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. They won't be able to heal their land. They won't know how to do it. I'll heal their land. That's what I'm saying to you. I believe it's a true statement that the most powerful segment of the electorate in the United States of America is the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because we are so many or ever will necessarily be the majority in the nation, but it's because we have a Father who listens to our cries. And if it means that the first of our cries are coming back to him, Lord, forgive me. Lord, have mercy upon me. Lord, I have sinned. Then he hears those prayers. He honors those prayers because he loves us. And then beyond that, he knows how to heal our land an open heaven, an open heaven. That is a truth. That is a wonderful reality for the people of God. But you say, that was, Israel, that, that, that was, that was about the temple in Israel, in Jerusalem, and, and, and we, we, don't have, we, we don't have a temple to go to. That temple was destroyed, and we don't even know where the Ark of the Covenant is truly. We don't know where the mercy seat is is that sits atop the Ark of the Covenant where the two wings of the cherubim left a gap and the Lord would say to Moses, I'll meet you between the wings of the cherubim. That his glory, the Lord's glory, that Shekinah glory, the place on the earth where God's glory was seen was between the wings of the cherubim 
above the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies in the temple, before that in the tabernacle. But we don't have that place to go to, so how can we even have a sense that what was said about the temple and the Lord's covenant with the temple and that the prayers offered in that place would apply to us. It's amazing. Though the temple has been destroyed in Jerusalem, Paul would say, do you not know to the Christian that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? that you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are his. For the Lord to say, for the Lord to say, now my eyes shall be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. You and I to understand that place back then has moved to this place right now. Your body is the temple of the, when the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was poured out and, and the precedent was set there that throughout all the generations of the church, the desire of the Lord was to fill his people with the power of his presence, that it meant that he would inhabit us, he would dwell in us. We would not be orphans, we wouldn't be left on our own, but that we have a helper and his name is the Spirit and he's alive in us and he'll give us what we need as we need it to follow Jesus throughout the days of our lives. But then this amazing statement, I want, you to, I want you to cherish this in your heart if you haven't spent much time with it. The Lord says, for now I have chosen and consecrated this house, this house. You can put your hand on your own chest. I've consecrated this house, washed in the blood of the Lamb, cleansed by the power of the forgiving blood of the Lord Jesus. I've consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. He's talking about you. He's talking about the place of your body. He's talking about his spirit alive in you. My eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As much as it was true that the prayers offered in the temple in the geographic location of Solomon's temple. The Lord had covenanted to hear because his eyes and his heart would, there, would be there perpetually. So has that promise been made to you and to me. Do you hear why I'm saying that the single most powerful, potentially, segment of the human population is the ones who know Jesus? and who have, been, have received his spirit and he's alive inside them because the pledge is, the Lord's pledge is, my eyes are upon that place and my heart is in that place, open to the prayers offered from there, from that spot, from that place, that place where you kneel to pray, that place where you bow your head to pray. It may be early, it may be late, it may be middle of the day, it may be at a time when you, when you least expect it. But there's just a sense to talk to the Lord, to cry out unto him, to speak his name, to give a need to him, to give him thanks, to praise him. It could be many different ways and times, but you don't have to go to a temple. You, you, there's not even one over there in Jerusalem. You don't have to come to a church building. The Spirit of the Lord doesn't inhabit sheetrock. He doesn't inhabit ceiling tile. He inhabits you. 
He inhabits you. Can somebody say amen to that? And thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You know, and what he cleansed us from, what he, what he set us free from, and then he would still choose for our, those same vessels that dishonored him in many ways for so long. Now those vessels of dishonor have become vessels of honor. And he set his eyes and he set his heart upon us, upon our lives, upon our spirit, upon our heart. Now that, that, that's, a, that's an amazing thing and, and a truth to be cherished by, by all of the Lord's children. But in it, in it, there was a very clear statement of, of, of warning and, and encouragement to, to stay on, on the right path and that it is, it is that if there is, if there is sin, if, if, there is, if there is something that we are doing that grieves the heart of our Father, then it can result in the prayers that would be offered from that place somehow being affected, somehow, somehow being contaminated, in a sense, with, with the choices that we're making and the actions of our lives. So he, he will say, my people are to humble themselves and pray, but they're to turn from their wicked ways, turn from their sinful ways. Then I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sin, heal their land. I just feel like folks that I need to speak this word of, of loving warning. I'm not, I'm not trying to fuss at anybody. But I feel like this has just got to be read into the record of the church. We've got to hear it. And, and we need to, Lord, is this me? Is this, what, is this what is going on in my heart that would cause my prayers from this place to be hindered in any way? Will you leave 2 Chronicles 7? And will you go to the New Testament and the book of Matthew and Matthew chapter 6 and these words of what we call the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer, again, which is our, which is our pattern as we pray through these weeks leading up to the election. Lord, do it again. Lord, pour out your Spirit upon this land. Send a great revival, Lord, as you have done in days past. The pattern will be the words of Jesus, and we've been spending time on that. Started last week. We come to it again this week. How Jesus instructed us to pray. He says in verse 9, pray then in this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. Separate is your name. Above and beyond every other name. The name representative of the person. Who you are is above and beyond anything that could ever be named. And you are our Father in heaven. You are not, you are not limited to the confines of this earth. You are not limited to the supplies or the rules or the laws of this earth. You're our Father in heaven. Holy is your name. Separate is your name unique and beyond any other name is who you are. Then he says, you pray this way. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Now, we've been on that. I won't even take time to touch on that this morning. We spent time on that last week. We'll be coming back to it again. But what is the essence of the kingdom? The essence of the kingdom is the presence of the king. You can't have a kingdom unless you have a king. 
And it's like you don't have a kingdom if the presence of the king is not there. So this presence of the king in our hearts is what Jesus is speaking of here and the heart, in the hearts of people. You'll find the kingdom in the hearts of people, not in a geographic place or building, he would say in another teaching. Then he says, thy will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. We are invited, we are instructed. In fact, the word here is, is a command that we have, we have are to have a sense of, 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 of loving um, assurance that where there are needs, daily needs, that we can go to our Father and say, Father, this is my need. You've promised my daily bread to satisfy, to meet my daily needs, and I'm trusting you, asking you for that. But then he says in verse 12, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And then Jesus repeats something. There's only one theme that he comes back to out of the several that are listed in the prayer that he taught us to pray. And here it is, verse 14. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. He's listing it in effect as a sin, missing the mark of God, that God's plan for us is that as we have been forgiven, as we have, as we have been released, as we have been set free from our sins committed against him, so his heart for us is that we would in similar fashion release others who have offended us, who have sinned against us. He, he repeats it as if he wants the church to know that the refusal to forgive, the refusal to release somebody, anybody at the point of offense, wronged done, it doesn't mean that you're saying all of a sudden, well, what they did wasn't so bad. It may have been awful. It may have been terrible. It may have been criminal. But we are not to carry that offense. We are not to carry the sense of vengeance, revenge against those individuals. We are to release them under the Lord. To release them. You say, well, Pastor, I know that. I know that, so why are you talking to us about that? Because what I'm, I'm concerned about is going on in too much of the Christian community is that somehow we have decided in the tenseness and the warlike sense that has come upon our country that we are somehow justified in refusing to forgive certain political features, creatures or certain 
Hollywood figures. That when the name comes up or a video comes up or something that they have said you read, something can just go off inside us. And as a result of that, the Lord could be looking down and realizing, wait a minute, wait a minute. Do you remember what I got you out of? Do you remember what I forgave you of by my son's death on the cross? Do you not even remember how you used to talk and how you used to think and what you used to do? That's why Jesus would say, as the Father forgave you, as I have forgiven you, so you and I are to forgive those who sin against us. My concern is that if we don't own this, folks, if we don't start watching our talk, if we don't start somehow bringing this truth that the Lord is offended when we continue to carry an offense because we don't want him to carry the offense toward us of the stuff we've done, but somehow now we feel like we have the right to carry an offense toward someone else, to which Jesus will say, and he repeats it, you forgive, you release, and you will continue to know the Father's release. It's not about taking us to hell. It is about the sense of closeness. It is about the sense of fellowship. It's about the sense of oneness. And it is possible, Paul will say, to grieve the Holy Spirit. You can quench the Spirit, but you can also grieve the Spirit. The Father has a personality. Jesus, a personality. The Spirit is a personality. And, and it's possible for there to be things that go on that we choose to do or refuse to give up or refuse to let go of that end up being a place of grief in the heart of the Spirit. And especially, folks, when it is something that we've wanted the Lord to do for us, but then he sees us turning around and not wanting that to be done in somebody else. Okay, now it's real quiet in here. I expect it to be a little quiet. That's okay. But I think you're listening. And I'm not, I'm not saying this as if I have mastered this at all. What I'm saying is that when we're realizing some places that the Lord is calling us out or, or wanting to make sure that we understand how he feels about this, and then we realize how short we come in our natural ability to live up to that, the, the, what it's supposed to do is just drive us right back to Luke eleven thirteen. 13. If you then being evil, Jesus said, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give, you, give the Holy Spirit to those who are asking him. Folks, when I know I need help, that's when I start looking for a helper. When I know I can't do something on my own, that is the place and the time where I start looking for support. And Jesus named his spirit. One of his names for his spirit is the helper, the one who will come alongside and help. So if I'm needing help letting go, if I'm needing help forgiving, if I'm needing help releasing someone and what they have done unto the Lord, 
And I realize, honestly, I can't forgive them from my heart as Jesus requires us to do. Then it's going to press me back into that well of living water, that fountain of living water. It'll press me back into crying out, Lord Jesus, will you give to me your help? Will you fill me freshly with your spirit in this spot in my life? Because I can't do this unless you help me do it. It's one thing to confess the sin of not being able to forgive, the weakness that can, that can turn into sin, choices, but we just refuse to, to, to stay bitter. We, restuse, we just continue to, to, to write people off, give up on things. But when we, there's one thing to confess that as a sin, and then it's another thing to just excuse it like it's all right. That politician is so sorry. That Hollywood face is so rotten to the core. I don't even, I don't even have to ever release them. If they have offended you, if when their name or their face comes up, resentment rises up because of what they have done or said or represent, then you do have something that resonates within you. You and I do have some things at that point that we, we can either hang on to and say, well, God's mad at them too, then I got a right to be. And we hang on to it, and it cooks, and it simmers, and it sets within us, and then there can be these explosions of anger. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul lists first what are the demonstrations of the flesh. And he lists sensuality and, and, you know, and, and all kinds of things. But then down there in the middle of the listing of the, of the demonstrations of the flesh, he says outbursts of anger. Outbursts of anger. That is juxtaposed to what he's going to say with regard to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22, where he'll say the fruit of the Spirit, instead of outbursts of anger and all this trashy stuff, is love and joy and peace and patience, and kindness, and so forth. That list of the ninefold fruit of the Spirit. He will, Paul will write again in Ephesians chapter 4. You, 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 be, you be angry and do not sin. Or there will be some things that, that are, we are justified to want to take a stand against and to speak out against. But then he says, but don't let the sun do what? Go down on your anger. Because he said, and then the next phrase is, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Embedded anger, embedded unforgiveness has the authority, has within it the ability to grieve the spirit, but also to invite Satan, forces of darkness, to come and inhabit a place inside our hearts. The devil can't take it but we can give him something. And when we're choosing to not release, to release to the Lord, the ones who are offending us, their position, their life, their statement, their words, their actions, offend us. But we feel like somehow we have the right to hold that because it's so wrong in our eyes. And we would match the Scripture up with it, and it's wrong in the light of Scripture. Here, here's my point, folks. Jesus, there's not an asterisk by the statement, 
You forgive and your father forgives. You don't forgive and the father... It's not with an asterisk except for these political figures. Except for that family member. That you're okay to keep on staying stewing about that and resentful and waiting for the bolt of lightning to strike to just take them out of the way. And we're not. We're not justified. Because Jesus would say back to us, I forgave you. And what I freely gave to you, I'm calling upon you to freely give away. Our heart for difficult people. How about if we just call them difficult people? Our heart for difficult people should be the same as the Father's heart for difficult people. If, if we are the temple of His Spirit, if, if, if He's alive in us, Jesus filled me, then His outlook on people should be our outlook on people. All right? Case in point. What is the Father's heart? John 3.16. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus the religious leader, late in the night, late in the evening, after dark, private meeting. Nicodemus didn't want to be seen with Jesus, so he found him secretly. And in that conversation, Jesus said this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son speaking of himself, so that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Now, if I had a great big old gong, one of those great big old Chinese gongs, and I could rear back and just whop the fire out of that thing so that every Christian who has grown up with John 3.16 in the back of your diaper, and been on your pacifier. You've known that verse forever. But somehow, we have forgotten or we've missed the point that Jesus came, Jesus was given to a God-cussing world, to a lying, cheating, murdering, raping world. Nobody had repented. Nobody had built a church. Nobody had given a love offering to Jesus. It was the world as the world in all of its dimensions of sin was. It was not that God so loved the world after the world cleaned itself up and started doing better. Jesus came out of heaven and nobody knew his name. The ones who should have known his name rejected him, resulted in his death physically. God so loved the world. Which politician in Washington is not included in the world? Which, which, which super rock star, super meteor star, whoever it would be in Hollywood or wherever is not included in the world of humanity? If it is God's heart to love the unrepentant, if it is God's heart to love the ones 
who don't love him back, don't want anything to do with decency or morality, etc., etc. And he calls upon us for his spirit to fill us, for us to be his witnesses, for us to speak his truth, his heart, his life. But we've got some faces because of what they've said they believe, because of what they may have done, because of all kinds of whatever we could come up with to justify the fact we can love everybody in the world, but we have permission to not forgive that one right there. I suggest to you, you can blow your fuse on your prayer life. You can cause there to be something to begin to interfere with this open heaven that we desperately need now, church. We don't need any problem with God hearing us. We need him. We need his help. We need his intervention. We need to know that he's with us, that he's walking with us, that he's fighting the battles for us. But he says, if you won't forgive, if you won't let go of, you know what I mean? We get around in our little Christian huddles. Sometimes we call them prayer circles. Or we call them different things. And, but somehow in the context of that, we feel like that gives us permission to just rip to shreds somebody who doesn't agree with us. And they may be as, they may be as far off, lost, and in darkness as anybody could possibly be. But nowhere does the scripture give us the right to not forgive them? The sin ultimately is between them and God. We are just a casualty laterally. But when we turn them back over to the Lord, that's where it needs to stay. You let unforgiveness cook in your soul. And you will end up being mad. You'll end up being narrow. You'll end up being paralyzed. Paralyzed because there's no love in your heart. You saw a preacher, I don't know how you can say that. I know exactly what I'm saying, and I'm telling you, I'm worried about it sometimes in the church. Well, because she's believing that, he's doing that, or he represents. You know, we say, well, I just. I'm going to just pray that he won't get elected again. Whoa, how small is that? What if the reason you know him <laughs> is because the Lord wants to do in them what he has done in you? And the reason that you know their name is because the Lord has brought them into your life to pray, Lord, do it again. Lord, do it again. Lord, do it again. Lord, do it again. Give them a double portion of what you've done in me. Do it. But you know what? If we're so mad and we're so justified in our righteous indignation that we think we can just refuse, we don't have to forgive, we don't have to mess with them, they just need to go on, they just need to you know, go, go just get out of the human race, then there's no way until God changes our hearts that he could ever use us to impact them. What part of for God so loved the world do we not get? 
And the crazy thing about it is sometimes folks who have been to hell and back in the choices you've made or we've made can be the most judgmental, can be the ones that will be the most seeming justified to not let go of, to not forgive. Here's the point. You want an open heaven or you want a closed off heaven? You want your prayers to be heard or you want to just be talking to sheetrock and ceiling tile and eye beams? David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So when Jesus says, you forgive and you receive forgiveness, and then he comes back and he says it again. God in the flesh only has to say one thing one time in order for it to be significant. But when Jesus, out of all the things he could have said for those few years that he was on this earth, repeated himself, he didn't do it because he was stuttering or because he didn't have anything else to say. He was saying because it is a law of the kingdom that if you want to walk in forgiveness, if you want to live in forgiveness, you need to be giving forgiveness away. Oh, but you don't understand what they're doing. You don't understand if they get elected what that's going to mean to this country. You're right. I don't. God does. He's God and you ain't. Can I say that again? Maybe correct the grammar. He is God and we are not. We feel like we choke them, choke them into changing. Only the Spirit of the Lord can do the work of changing a heart. Amen? And listen, we're sitting here, we're listening to this today, knowing that Jesus can change a heart. I'm telling you, Alamo City is filled with some of the most incredible testimony. I have often said, there isn't one, I'm not aware of one kind of testimony of the Lord rescuing a life from this, that, or the other, that is not true as a part of the Alamo City body. We know his power to rescue the perishing. We know the power of the freedom of his forgiveness. And it is incumbent upon us on the basis of that to make sure we're giving away what we have been given. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 2 Peter 3, 9, Peter writes, The Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some men count slowness. But the Lord is patient with you, not wishing for anybody to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He's not willing, he's not wishing, he doesn't want anybody to perish. But somehow we get Get it so twisted in our minds, and well, that one ought to perish. That one ought to go. That one ought to get struck down. That one ought to go in a car wreck. That one ought to get cancer. That one ought to go because they're just so sorry. The heart of the Lord is so completely opposite. His heart is, is there's nobody that I don't love. There's nobody that I won't seek and desire to save. I remember that up, up, in, up in the tree, up, up, up in the tree, Zacchaeus, chief Pharisee, little bitty guy, but he was a chief, not Pharisee, but a tax gatherer. He, he was the lowest of the low on steroids. He, he was in charge of the, of the, of the tax gatherers. 
Jesus comes into Jericho that day. Zacchaeus couldn't see him because he was so short. Remember, he climbed up in that sycamore tree. Why? Because he wanted to see Jesus. Jesus walked under that tree. Out of all the people he could have called by name or said, I'm going to spend quality extended time with, he stops under that tree, looks up at that little man in that, up on that branch, and he says, Zacchaeus, called him by name. Zacchaeus, come down, for I must have dinner in your house today. And then, because it freaked out so many of the people around him, why didn't you go with the local rabbi? Why didn't, why didn't you go with these folks over here? I mean, they have a little more respectable. Why, why are you picking that one out? And he turned and he said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Seek meaning hunt them down. Trail them. Track them, pursue them, daylight till dark, midnight till morning, whatever it takes to come to seek and to save, rescue, deliver, snatch out of the pit that they've been in, pull them out of the confines of that which has bound them to save that which was lost. Here's the meaning for the word lost. It comes from a, a word meaning destruction or the destroyer. It's a, it's a synonym for Satan, the destroyer. But lost means... One who has been destroyed by the destroyer. Or one who is being destroyed by the destroyer. It, it, it's not, Zacchaeus, get back down here. I want you to quote the Ten Commandments by memory. And I want you to do it standing here in front of me and all these people. So you can prove that somehow you're trying to lean toward righteous. Zacchaeus hadn't repented of anything. Zacchaeus hadn't given a love offering to Jesus. Zacchaeus hadn't done anything. Zacchaeus was as lost as a product of the destroyer's destruction as anybody could be. But Jesus sought him out, called him out of his place of hiding, and went and spent the afternoon and maybe the evening with him. His heart, his heart in our heart. Jesus, fill me with your spirit. Then, then, then don't expect that all of a sudden you're going to find such righteous indignation that you can stay miles away from these folks that you just are offended by what they've chosen and, and what they're pursue, pursuing and, and what they might, uh, how they might contaminate you if you get around them. Look at Jesus. 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 And from how he lived, we see how weak and feeble and wrong our justification to refuse to forgive. Anybody for anything. You say, but pastor, that's impossible. I know. That's why I said earlier, you and I got to have some help. And that's his name, the helper. Lord, I'm told to release, and I see their faces, and I see what they stand for, and I see the direction they want to do, and the changes they won't make, or the changes they will implement. And, and I, I see all that, and it just, it just upsets me. I need help. 
instead of sitting with your unforgiveness and assuming that it's justified, recognize it for what it is. It is a sin in the sight of God. When we call it that, then we can get forgiveness for that. But if we keep skating around it and talking to our little Christian buddies and we're all just going off on everything and everybody and all of this and all they're just, and, and, and we're, we're encouraging each other to hold on to the unforgiveness, then we are collectively causing our prayer meetings, if it ever turns to that, to turn into just no higher than the ceiling talk. No farther than the sheetrock talk. David said, if I regard iniquity, if I hold on to sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. We need him to hear us. We need him to hear us. Which is more important? Holding on to the unforgiveness and thereby jeopardizing an open heaven or saying, Lord, I'm given this burden of carrying this offense, I'm giving this to you. I ask you to forgive me for holding on to the offense. And you see, he knows whether or not we have forgiven from the heart. We can do all this mental stuff, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive, and that's, that's, just, that's just nonsense talk. Jesus says, you forgive from your heart. That's a total different thing than just my words. He reads my heart. And he knows whether we're still holding on to it or whether as best we can, Lord, I give this to you. And every time it comes up and I'm still mad, I'm still wanting to hold them and, and keep, seek revenge, I just have to keep giving it. Lord, I, I, it's still in me. Help me. Help me. I confess this is wrong. I don't want to grieve you. I give this to you, Lord. And he will, he will help. He will help. I, I want to encourage you, and we're going to, I'm going to stop here in just a second, but I, I, I want to encourage you. Use, use the key players in the political process right now and the ones that, you know, every time they walk in a room, they got to have a microphone in their face. Use that list of people to become your prayer list. Instead of it being, okay, there's one you ought to take out, Lord. There's a good one right there. Just nuke him with a lightning bolt. There's one right there ought to get sick and die. Instead of praying that way, back up from that. Drop that. Jettison that. Back up into and embrace the perspective of the Father. God so loved the world, every one of them, everyone in it. He's not willing that anybody should perish. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Folks, listen. The power of the church of Jesus in this day is about the power of God being turned into the salvation, the rescue, the restoration of people's souls. Far more important than this coming election. We're going to do the same thing about two years from now. And then two years after that, we're going to have another one of these big, these big grand big ones. And then we're going to keep, we're going to keep having these elections if America stays the place, stays a nation as long as we live. 
So, so what, what's the bigger picture? It's the souls of people. You pray for somebody who may be a million miles away from God right now and you cry out, Lord, pour out your spirit, bring your kingdom to them. Remove from them the blinders that the enemy has put upon them. Not, they may not have the change in six weeks when the election comes, but you may hear their name five years from now, 10 years from now, and you may read somewhere, this person who was so anti, like a Charles Darwin, thank you very much, whose, whose theory of the survival of the fittest and evolution just blew up in the electoral community. But when Charles Darwin was dying, he said to those around him, I put it out as a hypothesis. I didn't know it would get legs and do what it, but he declared at his closing, closing hours his personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see Charles Darwin in heaven one day, I believe. And yet he is attributed with all kinds of agnosticism, if not atheism. But by the, when it was all said and done, when it was ready for the Lord to call him home, he went to heaven because Jesus was in his heart. Folks, that's the bigger picture. We got to quit looking so myopic. Yes, we need to vote. Yes, we need to pray for the Lord's will to be done. But the bigger picture is the eternal souls of men and women. I beckon you as the church of Jesus Christ. Let's join with the Savior in seeking to save that which is lost. And not just to get the Democrats beat or the Republicans beat or whatever, 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 whatever. <laughs> All right, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. Lisa, where'd they go? I think they're going to, there's something they're going to sing to get us out of here and move us on into in the light of what we've been talking about. Now, folks, listen. If somewhere in your heart, this is truth that has hit you, or even if, if you're not sure, I mean, you, you, you wonder about how you can carry these resentments, and some of it is a sense of false responsibility. You are not responsible for the whole nation. God is responsible. We're one human, one person. So, Lord, these who offend, these who say and do things that seem to threaten, worry, scare me, I want to forgive them, release them from what they have said that has offended me, and I want to give them to you. I'll just give them to you. I can feel like it's a very un-American Christian thing to do, to not be worried all the time. I mean, you know, let's come up with another reason to worry, another reason to be afraid, another reason to doubt. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You seek fellowship with brothers and sisters in Jesus who will stoke faith in your heart and who will stoke forgiveness in your heart and out through you. But you avoid like a plague the ones that just live their lives like this. And they feel like they're justified with certain names and faces being held on to and that the only thing good for them is death. Here's a pretty radical statement. 
In Islam, the mantra is, kill the infidels. You, you, you evangelize by the sword. If folks want to submit, you kill them. It's somehow a double first cousin of that kind of spirit of religion that can work even within evangelical Christians. Where when somebody disagrees and somebody is way down the path toward that which we disagree with, we start praying, Lord, just kill them. Lord, just take them out. Lord, just, and on and on and on we can go. What's the difference between Islam and so-called Christianity at that point? Very little. But that's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. And you are different, and you are changed, and you are new. You've given another chance because he, he loved a sinner who hadn't yet repented. A sinner who hadn't quit cussing. A sinner who hadn't quit drinking his head off. And going nuts. Yeah. Amen. That's it.